and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Jess Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. And we're certainly going to get into both of these books today. We're actually going to talk quite a bit about The Addiction Inoculation, and we will pepper in some on failure as well, specifically as it relates to Jess's career and her life and some of the things she's gone through. And her writing has also been featured in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, many, many places. And she co-hosts an award-winning M Writing podcast, which we talk about in this conversation. She really is a writer. She's a teacher. She's a student, but she is fascinated by writing and she is one hell of a writer as well. And while Jess, I think, identifies certainly as a writer, she's worn many hats. She works as a prevention coach. She was a teacher for 20 years. She's a speaker. And so 
I think this is a wide ranging conversation. It's pretty broad, but Jess certainly, as I said, as a student, she's a researcher. She loves to look and find out statistics and think deeply about whatever she is passionate about, whether it's education or whether it's about addiction. And the reason she's passionate about addiction is Addiction has run through her family. Substance abuse is actually what, what she describes it as in today's conversation. And she's had her own journey with sobriety as well. And and she's transparent and honest and willing to share some of the messier times in her life. So I think you're going to find her to be vulnerable, genuine, honest, and just ridiculously sharp and smart. And so I'm excited to share her with you. So here is Jess Leahy. Jess, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Big fan of both your books, and they're very different, but that's what I think I love about them. And uh, there are some threads and some commonalities, but the piece that I actually thought we'd start with was around curiosity, because I have become just so obsessed with curiosity. I just think it's such a trait that I've tried to develop in myself. Um, And with two young kids, it's something that I think about often is how can I cultivate their curiosity And when I'm thinking about curiosity as it relates to failure, it's huge and massive to be able to be curious. But then I'm thinking about curiosity as it relates to addiction. And I'm curious about (laughs) that as well. And so I wanted to get your perspective as far as how you think about curiosity and its relationship with addiction and also with it as it relates to education and failure and learning. So uh, curiosity. Curiosity and I go a long way back. I was raised by two parents who were very much like, you want to find out the answer to that thing, go find it. In fact, I mentioned this morning to someone, a librarian, I was talking to a librarian this morning. And I said, one of the best things my parents ever did for me anyway, was they went to the librarian at the small library, town library where I grew up. Um, I grew up outside of Boston, very small town. And basically said, you will not censor. If she wants to check out any book, any section of the library, she's allowed to read whatever she wants from a, you know from the moment I got my first library card. And um, that was a gift, a huge gift. And so from my perspective, I've always been a nonfiction gal, although I, I do love reading fiction. My idea of heaven is a story well told that teaches me some things. And, you know, I know you've talked to David Epstein and his book about being a generalist speaks to me very deeply because I thought being, I always called it a dilettante. Like I thought being a generalist or a dilettante was a negative thing. Like it it showed a lack of commitment to uh, one thing. But for me, and if you look back, I'm 52 now, but if you look at my career trajectory and, and how I got to where I am now, it's based on you know, wandering, um, following interests, uh, you know, pursuing opportunities where I, it was a little bit of a fake it till you make it kind of situation where, you know, I went for jobs that I wasn't qualified for and then learned how to do them on the, you know, on the go. And that's, that's thrilling to me. That is exciting. That is thrilling. When I talk about my job, I say, you know, the best part about being a writer is, I can write about anything I want and I have to become an expert in that thing before I have any, any standing, any sort of authority to write about it. So, um, you know, it can be a double-edged sword because those of us who write about complex topics 
are in a constant, well, for I am, I don't want to speak for journalists in general, but I am in a constant state of, oh my gosh, is there an arm of research that I just somehow missed? Um, is my book going to come out? Is this article going to come out? And people are going to say, oh my gosh, she missed an entire area of scholarship. How could she miss that? She's such a faker, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So does I just make just, it my business. Does that, fear, does that fear of missing something help you? Does it hinder you? Yeah. Um, it helps me. So I was a teacher for 20 years. And from my perspective, my job was to not only know the material well enough to teach it to other people, but to anticipate their possible questions. So I couldn't just go in knowing, you know, the four Robert Frost poems that I wanted to teach. I needed to know a lot about his life and anticipate the crazy questions that middle and high schoolers can come up with. And that's that's part of the fun. And it's interesting because I'm going to go back to curiosity real quick. I was yeah. with my parents the other day and my dad, they're kind of, you know, my dad's 72, my, my mom's 67. So when my dad goes to college, you know, the dorms are, you know, they're, they're one gender. And then mm -hmm. he, by the time he graduates, everybody's mixed. <laughs> and, you know, he's at an age where things just change so rapidly, but mm -hmm. my, dad, my dad's never smoked marijuana. He's never smoked a mm -hmm. cigarette. Um, very, what you would call maybe square, but he's a very curious person. He's a journalist mm -hmm. and by trade and loves to ask questions. And so I was starting to think about like, well, is it curiosity that causes our youth to try drugs or alcohol, or is it more peer pressure? Is it the desire to fit in and have a sense of belonging? Is like, what is it? Because I know mm -hmm. for me, when I've tried things, there's often curiosity. Oh, I'm, I'm wondering, or I'm checking out a new book. It, and so how do we cultivate curiosity in our kids, but also have boundaries with them? That's such a great question. And it turns out that to all of the things you suggested, the answer is yes, partially. Um, a lot of, so when you look at the camps around, you know, where substance use disorder, which by the way, we're not supposed to call it addiction. It's, we're supposed to be using this person first language. So I am a woman with alcohol use disorder, AKA I am an alcoholic. I use both of those terms for myself, but for other people, I use the person first language. Um, and there, there is a camp that is, you know, there's the um, substance use disorder is a brain disease. Substance use disorder is a response to trauma. Substance use disorder is one of them is that it's a developmental disorder and or a development. It stems from a certain developmental period. And that is very true. Um, adolescents in particular, when people are most likely to try drugs and alcohol, um, that is a time when. So a lot of different ways to come at this, but there's it's a time when our brains aren't fully developed. That doesn't happen until the early to mid twenties. Our go 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 sort of our accelerator, especially when it's connected to our um, emotions, is in like pedal to the metal sort of mode. Whereas our stop function isn't as highly tuned yet. It's not fully developed yet. Um, there are kids are newly dealing with things like ADHD, ADD, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of mental condition, uh, mental disorders, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, lots of things can, can sort of pop up in late uh, teens, early twenties. So there's so many different reasons, but to answer your question, the way we encourage creativity, curiosity and creativity, but curiosity without 
making our kids so curious to try things that may be dangerous for them, whether or not that's drugs and alcohol or driving really fast or whatever, is to also provide lots of information, information about um, what's negative about it, what's positive about it. If we say to a kid, drugs are bad, we're lying and they're going to know they're, they're going to know we're lying because why on earth would anyone do drugs if drugs were just bad? Um, so we have to provide a really great basis of information about drugs and alcohol, but also about how their brain develops. We have to let them know that trying drugs and alcohol, um, the younger you are when you try drugs and alcohol, the higher your lifelong likelihood, statistically speaking, of developing substance use disorder is. Um, so the later we can, you know, the later we can get kids into late adolescence and early adulthood without introducing drugs and alcohol to their brains, to their systems, um, the lower their statistical risk of developing substance use disorder. And their brain has more of an opportunity to grow. So, you know, putting all these things together, we talked to kids about um, the pros and cons, the dangers, the benefits of, you know, what's happening with adolescent brain development with substances. And then we talk to them about the questions they have. We talk to them about, you know, all of even the scary stuff, you know, you're telling me mom and dad not to try drugs and alcohol until I'm of legal age. But you know, what about what you did when you were, you know, all of that stuff is really scary, but it's a really essential part of the conversation. What I really love about your work is I think that fear that you mentioned earlier you you love the research. Um, I do. And, and even before we started, if I were to identify how your identity is beyond your character and, and who you are as a human, it's clear like you pride yourself on being a writer and a researcher. And that, mm -hmm. that shines through in your work. And as it relates to, you know, your latest book, you're deeply personal and you share quite a bit about your own journey. And so I'd like to just go toward you as sort of an mm -hmm. N of one, um, because I think one of the things that stuck with me from your book was this childhood friend of yours who you mm -hmm. had your, your first drink with. Um, and so I was just at a pool the other day and a mom was drinking a cocktail and, and then her kid was like sucking on some of the ice and I had just finished <laughs> your book and I'm like, Oh no, don't, no, stay away from that. Um, but, but starting with you as like an N of one, um, can you talk about a little bit of your your journey and, and relationship with, with substance? Because it's an interesting one in the sense that you remember your, your first taste. I don't actually remember my first taste. Maybe if I did some therapy on it, I could probably find it in there somewhere. Um, but And then the relationship with the person mm -hmm. that also had that first sip and, and what happened with them as well. So to start off, so I am the child of an alcoholic. And um, actually, if you look into my family and you look into my husband's family, um, we are both children of addicts and alcoholics throughout our entire family tree. So like lots of them going way, way back as far as you can trace. So I know that is part of my story. And just, just from the, for the dorky statistical perspective, what we do know is that genetics are about 50 to 60% of the risk picture when it comes to um, drugs and alcohol and, and developing substance use disorder. So I was at elevated risk when I, when I was born, then I also had a parent who is an alcoholic and now in recovery, thank goodness. Um, 
And I knew that the last thing I wanted to be was like my parent. And this has been a very, you know, we've had to do a lot of reconciling and, and, and relationship rebuilding out of all of this because that, that must be hard to hear. Hi, parent. I want to be nothing like you. Um, but, I, you know, so I stayed away from drugs and alcohol uh, when I was a kid. And to be also clear, I don't remember my first taste of alcohol. What I do remember is my first session of we are drinking to try to get drunk. And it was my friend's um, it was my friend's idea. And it was one of those a little bit of everything that's in the liquor cabinet so we don't get caught kind of thing. And I was less into it than she was. And she got drunk, 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 sick, drunk. And what's I hadn't thought about in a long time was what happened to her as it as happens. Friends go separate ways, that kind of thing. Um, and when I went to find out what happened to her, as one does once Facebook became a thing, I found out that I found her obituary. She died of liver failure secondary to um, her uh, to alcoholism and drinking a ton of alcohol in there's some dispute um, that I won't go into too deeply about whether it was on purpose or not on purpose and all that kind of sort of leaving Las Vegas style exit from this world. Um, but that was really disconcerting. I mean, that was my first sort of taste of what happens when you drink too much alcohol and I'm here and she's not. Um, and that's, that was really interesting. And, and as I got sober and I got sober in 2013, so I just hit nine years um, of sobriety, but my very first, my earliest thinking after I got sober was, you know, what about my kids? Like, how do I make this end with me? Um, generations and generations and generations could possibly end with me. And how do I make that happen? So there's, you know, there's the genesis of the book, The Addiction Inoculation. It's interesting when we think about sobriety. I was just on vacation somewhere and I'm, I'm kind of like this. I just became friends with the person that was sitting next to us at lunch. Uh, we got each other's phone number, my wife and I, this other couple, they were there with their kid. We weren't with our kids at the time. And I said, oh, like, let's go grab a drink tonight. And she goes, actually, we don't drink. And mm -hmm. um, when she said that, I thought back to this podcast and I'm like, gosh, there have been a lot of people that are actually sober that I've interviewed on the podcast but in my immediate circle, the people I hang out with all the time, I'm telling you, I don't think I have one person that I regularly see that is sober. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I started thinking about the last two and a half years and the amount, let's just talk about alcohol, the role alcohol has played mm -hmm. in a pandemic for people where the amount of alcohol, I mean, yeah. I know for me and my wife, the first couple months of it, you know, we were, we were drinking more than normal. And then we sort of were like, whoa, 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 we're drinking more than we usually do. And since then, I think we've gone more into our, our normal, more traditional drinking habits, let's call it. But I've noticed others that may still be, I don't want to be judgmental of them, but I notice in my circle, it's like, gosh, there aren't that many people that are sober. And it's a big part of our social setting so I, the question there is, do you find that because it is so social that people that are sober tend to um, find each other and then 
like, I guess I'm wondering, like, where are all my friends that are sober? <laughs> and like, because yeah. I respect the hell out of it, to be clear. Like when I have people like when that woman said to me, oh, yeah, and drink, I'm actually great. Let's go grab a bite or let's go grab a coffee mm-hmm. or let's just go hang by a park or, or whatever. I actually am attracted to it at this point in my life. Maybe I wouldn't have been 20 years ago, but but today I really am. Do you have any any knowledge or thoughts on on it from a, a social standpoint? Yeah. So you brought up a bunch of things. I mean, we do know that drinking in adults definitely went up during the pandemic, went up quite a bit. Um, the number of parents who admit that they let their underage children drink at home during the pandemic was a little bit alarming. There was a rise in that number too. Um, as far as the impact on uh, adolescents, on children and adolescents, you know, I don't, we, we were seeing a really nice downward trend um, in their drinking behavior and drug and alcohol use uh, until leading up to the pandemic and it kind of plateaued a little bit and we were a little worried about that. And now we're just starting to figure out what's happening during the pandemic. Many of the ways we gather information got interrupted during the pandemic, especially around gathering information around children. So, and then on top of that, but on top of that, a lot of people had to face the fact that during the pandemic, oh my gosh, I'm drinking a little more than usual. And right before the pandemic, some really great books have come out recently and some really great um, new traditions have started, whether that's Sober October, Dry January, um, you know, a book, a bunch of books have come out that are in the sort of the sober curious genre or the quitlet, as we like to say. Um, it has become, thanks to some authors that, um, you know, I try to read everything that comes out on the topic. And there are some authors that are coming at it from the perspective of, I don't know that I'm an alcoholic, but I do know that alcohol doesn't make me feel good. And and for, for example, in Holly Whitaker's book, Quit Like a Woman, which got a lot of attention um, because Chrissy Teigen Instagrammed and, and tweeted about it. It was in the Sex and the City show. There are things I love about that book and um, things that I I'm not as crazy about, but the things that I love in that book is she says, look, we don't need to get a certain score on a quiz about whether or not we're an alcoholic. Alcohol is a chemical that is a carcinogen. It is really bad for our brains. It's really bad for our livers. So if it makes me feel not great, I should... I should just be able to say as part of my general health, I'm, I'm maybe I'm going to cut back or quit. So that's become a more viable option for people. So, so like your friends, they can just say, oh, we don't really drink alcohol. And it doesn't have to be a, oh, I, I'm an alcoholic, so I don't drink alcohol. This is just, eh, we don't drink alcohol. And that to me is a really interesting new moment for a lot of people that you can just opt not to have that be a part of your life, not because you have a problem with it, but because it doesn't make you feel great. And I love that. It's it's like a third option that a lot of people hadn't really considered before. Um, so as to where those people are, really depends on, you know, your culture, your, you know, your community. Um, whereas I got super lucky. My two best friends don't really like to drink that much. They'll drink occasionally, but not really. My husband isn't really a big drinker. He likes to have beer with dinner and that's about it. So we don't keep open alcohol in the home. A lot of the parties I go to, yes, but, and I live in Vermont. So, you know, there's weed around everywhere. Um, you know, I have friends that are that do imbibe quite heavily and and do use weed, and and I just sort of go to dinner parties at their house, and they're like, 
cool, we have these non-alcoholic op options for you. And, you know, that's been really nice. So I think there's a flexibility that we didn't really used to have, flexibility in our thinking about drinking or not drinking that we didn't have before. Yeah, I think the same occurs with exercise or diet and people being vegan, for example, or gluten-free right. and just more optionality. You said something, you were referencing genetics and then your family and your parents. And there's a quote that I recently heard that Obama was attributed to, even though he's not saying it's his quote. And I think you can sub out the, you can make these general gender neutral if you want. But he said, someone once said that every man is trying to live up to his father's expectations or make up for their father's mistakes. And I think you could do that M mother, every woman, and mm -hmm. what it doesn't really matter the gender, but mm -hmm. I heard you sort of smile or laugh at that. Um, any thoughts on that as it relates to um, what you've observed or even your own journey as far as living up to parents' expectations or, or also trying to um, make up for, for some of their mistakes? It's a really great question. I actually, um, when I'm out speaking about this, I, I, I spend a lot of my time on, on the road doing speaking engagements, either about gift of failure stuff or the addiction inoculation stuff, at like, you know, nonprofits and schools and places like that, community organizations. And one of the things I say regularly is that the most loving thing my father ever did for me was the, that last little intervention that got me to go to my first 12 step meeting. Um, my dad, I got blackout drunk at my mother's birthday party in 2013. And my dad came upstairs the next morning and um, my dad hates conflict. My dad loves me with all of his heart. And so especially hates conflict with me. Um, and he pushed all of that aside in order to say, I know what an alcoholic looks like because he grew up with one and you are an alcoholic. And at that point, I talk about this a lot that for me, getting to the place where you know you need help for me is like a, a 100 piece puzzle. And you, know, you can't have that 100th piece drop into place unless pieces one through 99 were there. But my dad in this case got to be piece 100. And at that point I was 100% ready. I was exhausted. I was sick. I, in fact, I got up that morning and barfed. It was horrible. And I went to my first meeting that night. So yeah, I, you know, there is some expectation. There is some like, you know, wanting to please your mom and dad or wanting to be not like your mom and dad. Uh, but in this case, I have to say this incredible moment, this loving thing my father did for me that probably scared the crap out of him was the most loving thing that anyone has ever done for me. And I, I very much credit him with helping me get sobriety. When you tell that story, how does it make you feel? Oh, I just love them so much. <laughs> no, I'm just grateful. And I would hope and see, here's the thing, you know, you can write the book on substance use prevention in kids. And I cannot guarantee that my own children won't have this problem going forward because, you know, they were born with a genetic predisposition and um, I can't, I can't, I can't guarantee any of this, but I have put a lot of those pieces in place. You know, prevention is very much about putting some of those puzzle pieces I mentioned in place so that if they do start to go down that road that where, you know, use slides into abuse kind of thing, they may have some of those puzzle pieces early on. But in the end, I hope that if either of them do have a problem that I will be able to summon the same strength that my father had 
to go to my children whom I hate it when they get mad at me. I hate conflict. I hate all of the things my father also had to face with me. And I hope I'm strong enough to be there for them in the same way. Um, that was, like I said, one love, incredible loving act. Yeah. We had Ethan Cross on the podcast and he wrote a great book called Chatter. And he talked about something mm-hmm. called Solomon's Paradox, where the more we know about something, sometimes we can actually be blind to using it and and using the the skills or the techniques or the ideas. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you hear this with psychologists, they'll say psychologists have the craziest kids because they are shrinking yeah. their kids, so to speak. As you think about all this knowledge and wisdom that you've obtained and you've researched and you've done such a deep dive in, in part for yourself and your own well-being, how do you also think about not overloading uh, the people around you? It could be friends or family members or children to not come off as preachy or someone. <laughs> yeah. Who is, uh, yeah. And even in your story, it sounded like actually early in your college years, you were almost, you know, like that where it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, I was. You were, you were you were often late. You weren't that interested in getting hammered in college or or experiencing it was later in your life where your relationship with alcohol really took a turn. How do you, how do you make sure that you're not coming off as preachy and you're sharing, but you're not oversharing with the people that are closest to you? Well, the piece of that puzzle you haven't even mentioned yet um, is that I work at a rehab. I mean, I work, I I spend um, time working with people in recovery at a rehab at this uh, place called Santa at Stowe in Stowe, Vermont. So yeah, it's a very big part of who I am. It's a part of who I am sort of in a very public way. You know, once you've been in People Magazine telling the story of, you know, getting blind drunk on your mom's birthday, you know, it's no longer something that's easy to keep to yourself. So for me, um, it's a place of incredible honor for me because now since going public about this and I went public about a year after I first got sober, um, there's this pattern of people reaching out to me just to talk about it or just to explore it or just to see or just to ask questions or people, you know, after, for example, the People Magazine part of thing came out and the addiction inoculation was just being published. Um, I started getting DMs from people I hadn't heard from in a very long time and not in sort of a, and they were doing it in a way that I could tell they were feeling out whether or not to talk to me about this thing, like the sister that they're concerned about or their own spouse, their con- whatever that was. So from my perspective, it's a place of great honor. Um, I am not afraid to tell people that I don't drink because I'm an alcoholic, um, but I also, I, I don't like preachy people. I don't like it when people preach to me about stuff. So I can, you know, given that it's sort of a public thing that's out there about me, I'm happy to just be this um, to be a resource for whoever wants to use me as a resource. And for example, last week, Anne Lamott, uh, the author tweeted that she has 32 years sober. And she said, and here's how this works. Reach out. If you feel like you need to reach out to someone um, and you're scared or you're worried, or you've had enough, reach out to someone in the comments and a whole bunch of people commented here to listen. And I did that too. And 15 people reached out just to either ask questions about how I got sober or whatever. And, and like I said, I think that, that being there when someone is ready to talk is the, um, the best thing that I can do for anyone. So that's the, you know, that's my approach. I'm, I'm not a big proselytizer, um, except when asked. (laughs) You said that your dad's not 
big on conflict. So it was a big deal for him to confront you about your drinking. What's your relationship with conflict and, and confrontation? Like, oh, I hate it. I hate it. I actually went to law school to be a lawyer in juvenile court, um, figured out sort of most of the way through after having interned in juvenile court and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, I realized pretty quickly that my temperament was not really suited um, to that. And I, I also realized pretty early in the process that I really wanted to be a teacher. And I worked as a teacher for 20 years. And that was what I was born to do, I think. And that's very much what my writing is about too. Um, but no, I hate, hate conflict. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Have you done anything to improve upon it? Yes, actually. I married my husband who <laughs> is, um, we are very, very different. Um, my husband comes from a family where you consider things, uh, actually a family of lawyers and, uh, and they consider things very carefully uh, my mother-in-law has taught me so much about this and my husband, especially because my mother-in-law is a very organized thinker. She, she was a lawyer and she sort of thinks things through before she opens her mouth. Whereas I tend to open my mouth and hope that what comes out will make sense. And I tend to conflict for me is a very emotional state, uh, but my husband is not that way. My husband is an ethicist. My husband is a physician. He's a very linear thinker. And, you know, in order to make our marriage work, and we've been married for a long time now, um, we have had to sort of meet each other in the middle a little bit, I think. And, uh, you know, that's been the changes I've had to make in order to be better at debate and having ethical conversations and talking to my children about ethics and morality and politics and current events, all of that has been really beneficial for me. Even just going to law school and learning how to think the way they teach you to think in law school, that was all, you know, when people say, well, was it worth it for you to go to law school, even though you didn't become a lawyer? And I will only say yes, because my law school was very inexpensive. Um, I went to University of North Carolina as a, uh, at Chapel Hill in state. Um, if I had, you know, a quarter million dollars in debt from law school, I would say absolutely not. But I think in terms of learning how to think, it's been really good for me. I had a couple of clients earlier today and one went to law school and, and talks about how he doesn't really use it and then had all this debt and, and so you're bringing that up. But then the other person I was talking to was a woman. And you said something that, that struck me earlier. You said, I, I go for jobs that I'm not qualified for. Yeah. And a lot of my conversations as an executive coach, when I talk to women, are that they don't always do that, that yeah. they actually hold themselves back when they're overqualified. And there's a lot of research that shows that men will absolutely go for jobs that they're not mm -hmm. qualified for. And women will actually hold themselves back and, and not ask for a raise and, and so on and so forth. What about you allows you to have the confidence to go for jobs that maybe seem like they're beyond your scope and, and have, I'm going to say a fearlessness mm -hmm. or cause earlier we heard like this fear of not having the research, but now we hear right. this other side of you that has this belief or conviction. Oh, I, I'm going to figure that out. And I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. What inside you I, allows you to do A that? lot of that comes from my parents because I think they, they, when people ask me, you know, I get a lot of questions about how I was parented because they think it will give me some, in, give some insight into how I parent. And I think a lot of that comes down to the trust that my parents had in me to figure things out and to make the right decision. I mean, I think they, 
they were great at acknowledging what I was good at and acknowledging what some of my weaknesses were and knowing that trusting in me to make good decisions. And the other thing I learned about myself is that I love learning on the fly. I love learning under pressure. I like a deadline. I like um, putting myself in a position where of impressing people by how fast I can pick something up. And that's dangerous because you know, I am very, I'm enthralled by the shiny objects. I would love the the awards for the writing and all that stuff. But we talk, I, I host a podcast about writing with two other best-selling authors. All three of us are susceptible to the shiny objects symptom, you know, syndrome. I even just mentioned that we're all three best-selling authors because that's a shiny object that's really important for an author's, you know, longevity and ability to sell a new book, blah, blah, blah. Um, by the ego we, too, right? And also like yeah, feeling yeah. fulfilled and satisfied and I did a good job. Yeah. And I think, you know, it that's it's easier to think clearly about those shiny objects. I think the older I get and the happier I am with the um contributions I've made. Uh, you know, I feel like the gift of failure and the addiction inoculation, honestly, as proud as I am of the gift of failure, the addiction inoculation was the book that I feel like I was born to write. It is what has made a difficult childhood where alcohol is concerned, where addiction is concerned. Um, my own, you know, decade that I spent in, as an active alcoholic, all of that pain and all of that suffering and all of the, um, all that crap that is all made worth it through this book. And now I get to give other people the benefit of what I learned from that. And what I learned from the years of research, you know, I spent going really deep on what, you know, when experts say substance use disorder is preventable, what that word preventable means. So once you've gotten to the, it's easier to say this once you've gotten to a place where you feel like, yeah, I've made a contribution that I, that I I'm happy with it's easier to say no to those shiny objects, but they're still there and they're really shiny. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to determine what you're doing because for the love of the thing versus for the possible um, rewards and benefits and applause you may get out the other side. So. You said that there were two things you were born to do, at least in our conversation thus far. Yeah. You said I'm born <laughs> I'm born yeah. to teach. And then you yeah. said I'm born to write. But uh, I think they're the, I think they're the same thing for me anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I really same. do. So, uh, you know, I talk about this a lot. My first, my first big national piece in any publication was with the Atlantic. And it was the, actually the piece that led to the sale of the gift of failure. Um, we had a big, it, it was just, it was a big deal for me. It was an article that went viral. And then we had a big auction with a bunch of different publishers for the book. Um, which is also incredibly scary, um, you know, because I'd never written a book before. <laughs> it was just really scary. But at the same time, I continued to go on and write for The Atlantic for a long time. I wrote a column for The New York Times for three years, and I write and I've written for The Washington Post and a couple other places. And almost every single article I have ever written for those places was a curiosity, a question that I had um, about just something that interested me. Um, and it turns out when I stick to that plan, when I, when I find something that, that either confuses or perplexes me that I want to know more about, and I write about that, those pieces tend to do pretty well, either because it's a reflection of sort of my enthusiasm or whatever. Um, but that approach, 
tends to work well for me. So that's why writing has been perfect for me, both the short form journalism and the longer form, you know, books, because, you know, I was just telling you, I've, I've spent the past two days at a conference called Laura Palooza about big Laura Ingalls Wilder super fans and people who are really interested in the research. Like there was a whole session on, you know, yeah, the book is called The Long Winter, but how bad was that winter? And the meteorologist was there talking about all kinds of, you know, research she extrapolated, blah, 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 blah. And I live tweeted that whole thing, and I'm going to be writing an article about it for a magazine. And that's heaven. (laughs) It's like, here's this complicated thing that's difficult to understand. Let me do all the research for you and then translate it for you. Um, That's like right there. That's the dream job. That's it. That's I I will be happy for the rest of my life if that's part of what I get to do. So I get it. You get to do the research and you get to teach by using the pen and paper or whatever we're using to to create words. I want to, I want to have you put your teacher hat back on though, because I've had other teachers on the, on this podcast And one of the things I'm so curious about is curiosity within our education system. Mm -hmm. For me, at least, and I'm speaking just for me, I never thought of myself as a creator or a creative, um, at least within our education system. Um, I wasn't acknowledged for being gifted Mm -hmm. and talented. I wasn't seen as a great writer. Actually, in college, I had a writing teacher who said, oh, you can write. Um, And in a lot of ways, for me, at least, the education K through 12 was a lot of stifling my curiosity and not, you don't absolutely, you have to have the answer. Like, and if you don't have the right answer, then you're not getting, not only you have to have the right answer, but often you have to present it exactly the way that you've been told to present it. And, you know, here, let me show you the other cool way you could answer this math problem. They're like, oh, no, 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 that's not. I mean, I think it's we're going in that direction where sort of computational sort of anyway, I think it's getting better, but you're absolutely 100 percent correct. I think the education system is the way it is set up right now stifles a lot of creativity as opposed to and curiosity and instead of feeding it. How do we change that? Oh, so many answers to that. I mean, I was an education journalist for, I've been an education journalist for a long time. um, And I love researching sort of the way kids learn. And often the way kids learn has nothing to do with how we measure that learning or how we teach it. Like, so for example, we know one of the worst, one of the worst styles of teaching for learning is sage on the stage, you know, a lecture up in front of a lot of people brain dumping. It's a terrible way to teach other people. There are things I can do as a speaker to help that. I use some visual cues. I do things with my body to sort of put exclamation points in certain places, but generally speaking, sage on the stage, sage on the stage sucks as a teaching tool. We know that um, small groups, we know that um, student-led inquiry, we know that um, problem or project-based inquiry tend to work better. Um, so a lot of, a lot of uh, institutes of higher learning are getting there um, and changing the curriculum in order to reflect that, that knowledge we have about how people learn. But we also tend to teach the way we were taught. And a lot of teachers, myself included, get off on the performance art aspect of teaching. I mean, I teaching for me is also partially about being on a stage. And 
crafting thoughts and crafting information in a way that helps people arrive at conclusions themselves and all that sort of stuff. So now that there's more accessible research for teachers and the other piece of this puzzle is that, you know, professional development has sucked for a long time. Teachers don't get, tend to not get great professional development. We tend to, there's often been a big uh, wall between research on education and how the brain learns and how uh, knowledge is, how information is delivered to children in schools. That wall is coming down a little bit when you look at amazing researchers like, uh, for example, Mary Helen Imordino Yang at USC, um, if I had mentioned her name to educators 15 years ago, people would have been like, what now? Who's the, you know, researchers. Now I mentioned Mary Helen Imordino Yang's name in a, in a room of educators, like for example, at the American, you know, middle school education, I'm saying it all wrong, sorry, but at Amley, this big conference of middle school educators, I mentioned her name and all these educators are like, oh, we love her work. You know, her work on how kids learn has really changed the way I teach. That's new. Um, so we're getting better. You know, we've got people going on in social media about creativity in schools and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're getting there. Things are in a state of flux right now. You know, A through F grading sucks, generally speaking. Um, and we know that, for example, standards-based grading, mastery-based oriented learning, where the learning is the key piece of the puzzle, not the grade that you get at the end of the learning. You know, we're able, a lot of schools are moving in a direction of, you know, away from A through F grading and more towards um, mastery-based grading. So, we're in a state of change right now and COVID really, you know, was a wrecking ball for a lot of that. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I think if you want, if you research education and you write about education, I think you have to be optimistic or you would just crawl into a hole and start weeping. There's a, there's a whole nother podcast to, to dive deep there, but I want to bring it back to, you mentioned that article in 2013 uh, mm -hmm. with the Atlantic and, um, I want to go back actually 10 years. So we're recording this in 2022. So it's 2012. And mm -hmm. I want to go back there with you because in 2012, you're drinking. Um, the article doesn't come out yet in the Atlantic. So take us back to 2012. And if I were to ask you in 2012, hey, Jess, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now? You're 52 years old. Um, what does life look like for you if you were thinking about it from a 2012 perspective? So publicly, what I would say to you is I hope I'm still teaching middle school, which, and I have to say, it's really, I miss teaching middle school a lot. I am a difficult person to have on your staff because if I, I look at everything we're doing from a, in terms of pedagogy and curriculum and all that stuff, and I have no problem whatsoever saying, nope, that doesn't work. Why are we doing it that way? And that's a difficult person to have on your staff. <laughs> Um, but I loved teaching middle school. Um, privately, I would be praying that I figured out a way to stop drinking because in 2012, um, I was teaching a very full schedule. I was a Latin and English and writing teacher. I was teaching six different preps. Um, it was, I was exhausted. I was at the end of my rope. Um, I had a lot of things that were just about to collapse in my world that hadn't collapsed yet. Um, and I was scared to death. The one thing that was really working for me was being a teacher and blogging about teaching, which is actually how all of this started for me. Um, 
and I found a lot of solace in the students. And so I, I, I definitely would have said, I hope I'm still teaching. I hope these students are still a part of my life. And many of my students are still very much a part of my life. Um, but I don't know that I could have predicted. I could, I, I hoped I'd get to write a book someday. And I dreamed of getting to write for someplace like the Atlantic or the New York times or the Washington post, but never in a million years, even in 2012, did I have a, um, did I suspect that was going to happen? And it's interesting because 2013, it's this watershed year in a lot of ways for you. Because, yeah. January of 2013. Yeah. I mean, like the, that article went, uh, went online on a Tuesday or Wednesday at the end of January in 2013. And it all happened really fast because I sold the gift of failure right after that. And by the time the school year ended, I was starting to write the book, having sold it a little um, earlier in the spring. And then you mentioned going public, I think in 2014 or maybe it's 2015. About yeah. So I got, so yeah, June 7th, 2013 was when I got sober and I went public, public the summer of 2014. Yeah. And how scary was that for you? Oh my gosh. It was so scary I wrote, it was in an article I wrote. Um, I was, it was a very specific story. I tweeted it just recently because of people coming to me to ask about sobriety stuff. Um, I was at a conference I go to every year called uh, Mom 2.0, Mom Summit 2.0, because I've done a lot of parenting writing. And Laura Mays, the person who created that summit, um, was sitting with her friend, Jenny Lawson. Jenny Lawson is a many times over bestselling author who writes a lot about, she's so funny. And she also writes about mental illness and writing from a place where she has depression and she's got other stuff going on. And Jenny Lawson was talking about pulling the monsters out from underneath the bed and so that the light is shining on them and you can see them and you can figure out what they are and you can talk about them. And I just realized that was the moment I had to do that. So that night I wrote a blog post about pulling out these scary monsters from underneath the bed and exposing them to the light. And that was, that was when I yeah, that was when I went public with it. And what would you have said to yourself prior to knowing what you know now about handling some of that fear and, and some of that anxiety that came with, with going public with it? This is something I talk about a lot with the people that I work with in recovery, because so for so many of them, it is such their inability to stop drinking or using drugs or whatever is such a shameful, you know, there's guilt, there's shame, there's secrecy. And many of them are clinging to secrecy like crazy. Like they cannot tell anyone because their whole world will fall apart. For me, just for speaking for myself, the more public I am, the earlier, sorry, the easier it is for me to stay sober. The easier it is for me because I'm accountable to more people. Um, my entire career revolves around the fact that I'm sober and that I offer people, you know, a place to talk about that. Um, and so for me anyway, being very, very public has been very, very important to me. And I think that's because when I was a child, when my sister and I wanted to talk about the fact that one of our parents was drinking too much, we were told that a, we were gaslit. We were told, no, 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 that's not what you're seeing. Or no, 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 there's no problem. Let's not talk about that. And I'm pissed off about that. Um, gaslighting children makes me angrier than just about anything in the world um, because 
it is so emotionally damaging. And so that's why I'm a big rejector in, in terms of my own life of secrets and why I tend to be as open as I am in interviews and in my writing, um, because it's just for me anyway, it's the way of exercise of pulling those monsters out from underneath the bed, because as long as we don't name things, there's a saying in uh, in therapy that you have to name it to tame it when it comes to emotions. And if we're not naming those emotions, those secrets, those scary things, um, then we can't possibly tame them. So that's why it's, yeah, it's easier for me to, to be very, very public. I totally respect people who feel like they can't do that. For me, it has been much, much easier. I had a mentor who used to say, do you have this story or does the story have you? And I can put that framework into so many other areas of my life. Do you have anxiety or does anxiety uh-huh. have you? Do you have sadness or does sadness have you? Do you have anger or does anger have you? Um, and I, it's it's just something when we start labeling things and we start to recognize that we have this and it's a part of who we are. Um, it, it That's changes. a really cool way of thinking about it. I hadn't heard that. And I actually started drinking mostly to handle, to try to manage my anxiety. Um, I, I have generalized anxiety disorder. And, um, you know, unfortunately it works in the short term in the moment, but it actually exacerbates anxiety. And so for a long time there, especially when I was drinking anxiety, definitely had me, I still have generalized anxiety disorder, but it does not have me in the same way. So I I really like that. That's a way of thinking about it that I'd never had never occurred to me. Yeah. I actually think it applies for me with alcohol. It's like, do I have alcohol or does alcohol have me? Uh-huh. Um, and for me, it's a reality check. It's like, Hey, like uh, I've done a month without drinking before just uh-huh. to do it. Or yeah. um, like, I think it's healthy for me at least. Um, I want to talk about failure because obviously that's another big piece of what you've written about. And um, it's interesting because I, I again, think about the pandemic and think about how a lot of people that are in my situation, at least I have a five and six year old, what do we do? We're privileged. We have capacity to take care of our kids in ways that many, many other people can't. And Uh and I recognize that and and acknowledge that, but there were pods that popped up and then it's like, do we put them in pods again? Or what do we do with our kids? Um, And, you know, transitions. And it's interesting because you talk about with addiction, how when we have multiple transitions for kids, it too can increase their potential Um, for having substance abuse as well. And so my wife and I always go back and forth on like, hey, how much transition is too much versus Mm -hmm. are are we coddling them? And are we, you know, not letting them be exposed to the playground and not letting them be exposed to the bully on the playground? Um, And so I, I think about the past two and a half years and I watch a lot of my friends and their kids and parents have just been so attached to their damn kids for so much time, at least in my community. And I wonder about, have they not let them have failure experiences? Have have they not let them have autonomy, which I know you talk a lot about. Um, Any thoughts on the pandemic and how it relates to failure and autonomy and what our children need? And I think it's a big concern for me, at least in my house, but I also see it in in our society. When the pandemic first started, um, a bunch of sort of parenting educators slash speakers slash authors, we're all, you know, it's a pretty tight, we're a pretty small community. And so a bunch of us got together and we're like, look, 
All of our stuff's been canceled. We have no speaking engagements now. We're not going out on the road. Um, and this is before really Zoom picked up and virtual stuff picked up again. We were like, okay, how can we be as helpful as possible? And we created this um, over the first summer of the pandemic, we created this thing called Parenting in Place. It was a masterclass for, for parents and we made it inexpensive so that, you know, and gave lots of scholarships so that anyone could use it. And the thing we heard over and over again was that when the pandemic started, parents who felt like they'd had a good balance suddenly because the world was spinning out of control for them in the external sense, they were, and they couldn't control what was happening out there. They started exerting more control in their home. Suddenly we're all in each other's business all the time. For many of us, our kids were home, we were home. Um, so what are you going to do with all that need to try to control things we can't control. And that's, you know, all of a sudden our poor kids then were controlled even more than they were before. So that was something that I definitely had to keep an eye on because all of a sudden my kid came home from college, my other kid was learning at home. And I, uh, the only thing left for me to control in terms of the pandemic and my anger and my sadness and uh, what my kids were missing out on was to, you know, exert control within the house at the same time. I'm married to an infectious diseases physician who's also an ethicist. Um, you know, we had a lot of conversations about, you know, managing risk and all that stuff. So that was helpful. I do want to mention that there's a really, really helpful book um, by Michelle Borba, B-O-R-B-A, called Thrivers. And she and also the work of Dr. Dan Siegel have really helped me think about this balance in my head and how I frame risk and failure and is this too many transitions are we am i heaping more risk on my kids or am i helping boost their prevention and their protective factors um michelle books michelle borba's book thrivers looked at kids globally it's sort of this book that she worked on for years and years and years looking at kids who have been through really really hard stuff and some kids don't do well after that. And some kids thrive after that. And who are those thrivers and what, I mean, there's the obvious stuff like privilege and having a lot of support, having that one adult that supports you and stuff like that. But what are the, the things that actually can help a kid thrive coming out of something like the pandemic as opposed to crash and burn? And so I highly recommend the book Thrivers. We don't have nearly enough time to talk about what's in that book. Um, but Dan Siegel did a really important thing for me. I was interviewing him for the addiction inoculation. And I told him how worried I was about all the risk I'd heaped on my kids, especially on my younger son. Um, we, one of the things we know is that transitions um, are a really, can be a very risky time for kids, especially between middle school and high school. So not only was um, at that time, my kid was in between middle school and high school, but we moved them to a new state. We moved the family to a new state where they knew no one. I knew no parents of any potential kid friends. It was a mess. And I told Dan Siegel about all this. And I said, look, I'm so worried about all this extra risk I've heaped on my kid. And he said, well, you could think that way. Or knowing what you know about the adolescent brain and the, the fact that the adolescent brain craves novelty, craves you know new experiences, craves competence, craves you know, a new, a rush of adrenaline over some new thing they've been able to master, you could see the, mu the move, you could reframe the move as opportun opportunities for so much novelty. 
and some of it a little bit scary, what we call positive risk. My kid has to learn how to drive in a new place, navigate a new place, go figure out where he's going to go for walks, meet new kids, try out for something or join a club, whatever that thing is. Those are all really scary risks, but gaining competence through doing things that are new slash sometimes a little risky, that's one of the biggest adrenaline hits uh, and dopamine hits that kids can access. That's one of the best way to get that dopamine hit um, that a lot of kids go to drugs and alcohol to get. So I think this idea of reframing, and in fact, when the Boston Globe asked me to write about this, um, you know, how to help kids come out of the pandemic, I'm like reframing. Reframing is one of the best things we can do for kids reframing our own fears and thoughts and worries and concerns and reframe, helping them reframe theirs. Um, so that's, that's been my healthier way of looking at coming out of this pandemic. As I hear you talk, I think of self-determination theory, which suggests yep. that we have competence, autonomy yep. and relatedness. Yep. And so that's just and self-efficacy is all rolled up in that. And, you know, that self-efficacy stuff is incredibly important too. And that's all part of gift of failure and addiction inoculation as well. Yeah, and I think of military brats who I've had on this podcast and clients, and a lot of them will say when they have to move a lot, they really quickly become hyper aware of their mm-hmm. surroundings and they figure out, all right, where's the bully? How do I avoid right. the bully? How do I make friends? And that helps them in sales or it helps them in other areas of their life as well. So there can be opportunities in those transitions as well. And I always think like there's, it depends if it's good, it depends if it's bad and and how you right. reframe it is, right. is important. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, as someone who loves to live in the gray area, you know, when I talk about, for example, that um, adverse childhood experiences uh, greatly increase risk for substance use disorder. And one of the adverse childhood uh, experiences that's mentioned by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente is divorce and separation. Are all divorce and separations a disaster for children? Absolutely not. You know, there's such a huge gray area in terms of experience. So I think we as a society are not very good at living in the gray area. We really want answers, black and white answers to questions. Um, And part of my job, as especially as a parenting educator, is helping parents get more comfortable with interpreting and navigating that gray area. So uh, that's, that's also one of the fun parts of this for me. Yeah. And I'm sure your husband as well, like somewhere along the line, we've gotten to a point where people are anti-science because it's not everyone and everything. And and then on the other side of it, people are like, it's the research, it's the science. And, and they're missing some of, no, well, they're saying if it's 90%, like that's good enough, but there's still a 10% risk. And like, that is often where we get to. And yet we have both sides shouting and yelling at each other. And it's usually not all that productive. Um, I want to go back to you for a second, because we have something in common. Um, I fell off a horse as a kid and I remember, <laughs> I remember falling off the horse as a kid and we were up in the mountains and this horse just threw me off and I fell. And my memories of it are actually that I wasn't all that terrified, but I can remember my parents being pretty terrified. And so I remember the rest of the trip, we were at a ranch and, you know, they're like, you don't have to ride the horse anymore if you don't want to. So I don't think I did the last couple of days, uh-huh. but the last day I was like, eh, I'm ready to go back on the horse. Let's go back on the horse. And I remember them being so proud of me for uh-huh. getting back on the horse um, you too fell off the horse, but a little bit later in your life, um, yeah. got a concussion, lost some memory. Um, it was bad. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was bad. 
So to me, it was actually the day, it was actually the day after I handed in the rough draft for the gift of failure. And my husband and I went for a ride together in the woods. He doesn't actually ride very much. He just agreed to go along with me. He was being nice. Um, it's a good thing he was with me because I was training a whole, we, we would take in these, a friend of mine, we would take in these horses from the, especially, essentially we'd pay meat prices for them from the, the meat seller, you know, the people at auction and train them and then resell them and that kind of thing. And this horse just got me, caught me off guard, threw me on my head. Yeah. And so my husband helped me out of the woods that day. I had no idea who I was, where I was, what my book was about. It was, it was scary. And we all know concussions are no joke. I got a concussion yeah. when I was skiing. It's not fun. It's terrible. It's yeah. serious stuff. You also got hit by a snowplow in 2019. <laughs> so, you so do I'm, your research, yeah. man. You really well, do your when research. Someone gets you know, thrown off a horse and then gets hit by a snowplow. There's a thread there. But, yeah. but with someone who also has anxiety, like, yeah, I, I know my parents wanted me to get back on that horse, but they also needed to give me space Yeah, for you when you fail or, or when you have mm -hmm. a traumatic experience, like those may have been for you. Um, what do you do to get back on the horse or get back out mm -hmm. there, especially knowing that you battle anxiety as well? How do you mm -hmm. overcome the anxiety or overcome the negative experience of having a concussion to continue going forward? It's funny you mentioned the horse thing because I actually have at 52 now, I've had two con two concussions. One, I re-traumatized myself and what I, <laughs> I re-injured my brain. What I realized was you can get a head injury doing just about anything because my second one, I was gardening. I was gardening when I got my second concussion. So um, I did choose not to horseback ride much anymore and definitely not go galloping through fields with my friends. And I also stopped downhill skiing. Um, those are the two concessions I made because, you know, I need my brain and I'm at a much higher risk of really seriously injuring myself and not being able to use my brain if I do it again. So, however, however, one of the things I'm most proud of in my life um, is actually a big failure. Right after Gift of Failure came out, I was asked to write about this actually for, um, oh my gosh, Virgin Virgin Atlantic guy. Um, I've forgotten his Richard, name now. Richard Branson. Thank you, Richard Branson. He has a blog. He used to have a section of the blog that was about failures. And I was asked to write about uh, my biggest failure. And what I wrote about was something that made me essentially want to throw up, which was that when Gift of Failure first, the first draft went into my editor, it was so bad. I had never written a book. I, you know, I'd written short pieces, but I hadn't written a whole book. And organizationally, it was so bad that my editor was like, look, this is unpublishable. It's just really bad. And started talking about getting a ghostwriter to sort of help me organize. And all of this was terrifying. And I begged her for probation, essentially, for two chapters of probation. Like, let me try to fix these two chapters. And if they're good enough, maybe you'll let me do the rest by myself. And just, just so we have the yeah. timeline, right? Is this after you've been thrown off the horse? Cause you said you said, yeah, it. yeah. The timing was really bad. Cause part of my coast post concussion syndrome included depression and emotional. I was just emotionally labile. It was bad. I mean, like my husband would look at me just to check in on my emotional state and I would just start to cry. It was horrible. Um, so yeah, after I fell off the horse, uh, she made it really clear. They were great. They, we had extra time because we realized we needed to push the pub date because I couldn't, I couldn't type. I couldn't look at a computer screen. It was, it was not good. So we had some extra time to deal with. So she let me do that. And I essentially said, okay, tell me everything I did wrong and how it should go 
And I filled a notebook with all of her. Thank goodness for my editor, Gail Winston. She is an amazing teacher also. She essentially brain dumped everything that was wrong with my book, everything I'd done wrong, which again, made me want to throw up. It was, it was just horrible. I'm not used to being, you know, I'm used to being able to figure things out and do them well and blah, 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 perfectionist, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So I created a huge um, checklist. Do not hand anything in unless you have made sure you didn't do these 50 things and you did do these 50 things. And so Gift of Failure ended up being a book I wrote by myself with obviously guidance from heavy guidance and heavy editing from my saint of an editor, Gail Winston. But the proudest moment for me was when I handed in my draft of my second book, The Addiction Inoculation. I used every single thing I learned from failing and then succeeding at writing The Gift of Failure to figure to, to write that second book. And actually what happened was I handed in that second book and there were so few edits that my editor was interested in moving up the pub date, um, which we didn't end up doing. But it was it was this moment of facing that fear of not being good at something to allow myself the freedom to learn how to do it and learn how to do it right so well that the next time I attempted to do something similar, I was able to learn from my mistakes. And so for me, I think one of the greatest things that I, anyone has ever said about me is that I learn really quickly and I don't make the same mistake twice. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't wish for anything more than that, you know, and that again, scariest failure of my life, of my professional life, definitely. And then, you know, being able to suck it up, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You know, this is not about getting a gold star on my forehead. This is about creating a work that I'm proud of and having it be all mine. That's beautiful. I think that's a good place for us to, to close. But before we do, um, you said, I'm, I'm born to be a teacher. I'm born to be a writer. Mm-hmm. But the last story that you told, I think you're also born to be a student, which is, probably what allows you to teach and write. And I think it's pretty clear that you spend a lot of time as a student. You have a humility to you that's willing to hand in that draft and say, all right, give me all the feedback you got and I'm going to change it. You know, the Blue Angels have a thing where uh, they go up in the air, they do their thing, then they come back and they self-critique. So they they self-critique, hey, what what could I, I could have done this better, I could have done that better than the other people say, all right, this is what you could have done better. And then they have accountability. So they say, all right, I'm going to fix it. And they always say, and I'm glad to be here to remind themselves they're grateful to be a blue angel. But I hear that accountability that you have for yourself. It's like, hey, don't tell me twice. I I got it. I'm going to be a student. I'm going to be humble enough to receive it. And then I'm going to also have this fearlessness or this tenacity or confidence or whatever you want to call it to then go write and and do a hell of a job. Um, But where I wanted to end was with your background. And so you talked about shiny objects before and how those could get (laughs) how those could get in the way for you. And maybe that gold star on the forehead could get in the way for you. But I'm looking at a lot of shiny objects in the background, uh, which people won't see because we're just going to do the audio. So I'm curious, Jess has this amazing background with all kinds of stuff. She said her dad had one. And so she was inspired by him. And she always wanted to have this cool background. Of all the people I've interviewed, I think you you win the Room Raider, uh, <laughs> you know, coolest background. But what is one thing in the background as you look back And maybe it's not a shiny object. Maybe Mm -hmm. someone else wouldn't even notice it's there, but the thing that you look at and it makes you smile. 
So I'm not a sentimental person. I don't tend to keep a lot of things, but so this is like the one place in my home where I put a lot of the things that I have kept. But um, I mean, honestly, for me, there's a picture behind me. The most important thing on this wall for me is um, there's a picture behind me of me when I graduated from law school with my best friend at the time. Um, her name was Mary Moore Parham. She was a law school classmate of mine and she died um, in 19, died in 2000. And um, now, and she was just had dedicated, she was going to go to law school. She was, a, she had finished law school. She was doing a master's in social work and she was working with people. She'd worked with rape crisis centers. She'd worked with, she worked with a lot of people that were underrepresented, undersupported and needed help. And so when I started working at Santa at Stowe, the rehab where I work now, um, they agreed to my consultation fee. And I said, okay, thank you for agreeing to that exorbitant fee. Now I don't want it. What I want you to do is take that money, put it into a scholarship fund called the Mary Moore Parham Scholarship Fund, where we help young people who normally wouldn't be able to afford rehab um, get treated for their drug and alcohol um, abuse. And so we just had our first scholarship um, client at Santa. And, and, you know, every time I look at that picture of Mary Moore, I, you know, I know she would be proud of me and she, um, she was just one of the best people I've ever known. And so it's, it's been a total honor for me to continue the work that I think she would have, have done if she had been able to stick around. That's very cool. Um, I'm going to promote you a little bit, and then I'll give you some time to think about if there's something that you want to promote, whether it's the scholarship fund and how people could get involved there uh, or the facility in the center. But Jessica's work all can be found on her website, jessicalehe.com. And then Twitter is a place where Jess is, she mentioned earlier, she's got this Twitter thread. I, she asked me, I she love said, did Twitter. you see what I was tweeting about? I was, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I like, jumped in a little bit, but it was a long thread. I didn't catch all of it before we went live, but she's at Jess Leahy, which is why I've been calling her Jess the whole time. And then LinkedIn is another place where I know uh, Jess is active, Jessica Leahy, um, and you can follow her there. Um, Jess, is there another place that people should look if they're interested in your work or is there something else that you want to just give a megaphone to and, and draw people's attention to? I'm over at Instagram too at, at teacher Leahy. Um, it tends to be a lot of dogs. I have a lot of dogs and um, I have a very motley pack and how many, I tend to how just, many dogs? Do you have? Well, I have three, but, but they're a lot. <laughs> just a lot. Anyway, so I have three of them. Um, I live out in the woods in Vermont. We spend tend to spend a lot of time outside and, and I tend to take a lot of pictures of the dogs anyway. So yeah, I'm, I'm on there a lot. I just, you know, right now I'm, I've dedicated this summer to, it is my last summer before we go empty nest because my youngest is going off to college and I made a very, a very good decision, I think, to back off from work a little bit this summer and spend every spare moment my child will let me spend with them. So that's that's been my summer. So, you know, in terms of promoting anything, I'd like to promote the idea that the time we get with our children is pretty darn short and it can really suck sometimes. So go for the moments that they'll let you have with them. We're in different phases because I mentioned I have a five and a half and a six and a half year old. And so we'll finish this up. I have to do a little bit more work and then I'll make sure I have dinner with them and, and maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll play outside a little bit if they're not toast from running around all, all day. In, in the Here, summer. I'll give you, 
I'll give you a hack. So at the Washington Post, there's an article that was an excerpt from um, the addiction inoculation, or you can just go find this in the addiction inoculation. We recreated a version of the Sean Evans YouTube show, Hot Ones, where he interviews people with increasingly spicy hot wings with the theory that the hot sauce will get them off their defensiveness. And so they'll answer more honestly. And so we recreated that over dinner one evening with my uh, kids and we, it was 10 wings, 10 questions. Um, and we asked them questions about themselves that we normally really, it wouldn't occur to us to, to ask. And so if your kids won't talk to you, especially as they get older, you have to get a little bit more creative, um, but it's totally worth it when it works. Well, for now, we've just got butter noodles and plain chicken fingers. And- <laughs> Uh, I think if we put anything on them, including <laughs> salt or pepper, they will get rejected. But uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And then you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Jess, thanks for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Loved learning from you via your books and your writing and from your teachings with the microphone on. So uh, I think you are a teacher, you are a student, and you are a writer. And it sounds like you're a great mom. So uh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing you. And hopefully we can meet in person next time you're in the Washington, D.C. area and, and giving a talk to one of the schools around here or whatever it is that you're up to. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. For me, just for speaking for myself, the more public I am, the earlier, sorry, the easier it is for me to stay sober. The easier it is for me because I'm accountable to more people. Um, My entire career revolves around the fact that I'm sober and that I offer people, you know, a place to talk about that. 